Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 48. The palace in Igorian is new, built after House Thrun took Cheliax. The old capital was in West Crown. It makes the summer villa of the Archduke look shabby by comparison. It makes Versailles, its best historical analogue, look shabby, though admittedly mostly only because of things King Louis XIV could not have helped, like the fact his gargoyles cannot prowl and his fountains cannot start in midair, and his orchards cannot grow seductively golden apples that drive men mad. The sky is flickering here, too. Well, good on them for remembering to fake the sky show here, too, if it's fake. But Keltham is mostly paying attention to other sites, because they're worth it. This place is beautiful and aesthetic, even by our standards. And on behalf of civilization, I compliment the architects and designers. Wait, is teleporting always that fast? That sort of matches his experience at the World Wound, in retrospect, but he had almost no experience with magic and spells back then, and didn't know he was looking at a spell and not a device that had charged up over the last three minutes. Though it wasn't so much that he had alternate hypotheses, back then, as that he hadn't really chunked spellcasting rules as a latent system, in a way that would make it easy to update over modular facts inside it. Teleportation is a fifth circle spell with the same casting time as the spells that you are familiar with. The wizard confirms. Sorry, just trying to figure out an ongoing mystery about the attack. Carissa, am I missing something, or should that security have just teleported us out when the attack started? We were at the edge of the forbiddance already. If he had it prepared and hadn't yet used it today, yes, and was at least fifth circle, but his haste lasted ten count, so he was. So maybe he couldn't teleport. Or maybe he could, but if you didn't think of that at the time, it's plausible he didn't think of it either. But if my god didn't predict my security not having teleport, or not thinking of it, that's an even stronger reason for my god to try to get me to the edge of the forbiddance in a way that could be synchronized with the attack. It would have been a reliable plan for my safety, not the better-than-worst harm-reduction version where I still almost got killed several times. Though it's also worth asking where the obvious place to teleport would have been, and if there could have been an ambush there, or if there's any way to intercept a teleport and... Well, later. Sorry for the interruption. Please lead on. Otolmans is very busy. She is guarding the vault containing Ravagug, while Zonkuthon gets dealt with. Not that his void-contaminated mind shouldn't have been dealt with immediately, but better late than never. She is not so busy that she is never looking back at the anomaly at all. It is now no longer within 100 distance units of Ostenso's tallest thing. It is elsewhere. For some reason, Otolmans had been thinking that, just since the anomaly had mostly stayed in the same place for a while, it was a kind of anomaly that did that. She cannot go on revising Phirasma's name edicts once they're issued, for the obvious reason that this would correspond to an unbounded edict supply. Asmodeus, tell your mortals to put the anomaly back in the interdicted region. Transparently evading a Phirasma's name edict is not amusing, and Phirasma will not be amused either. Asmodeus, 
is sort of busy while putting nearly as much effort into subduing this long-standing existential threat as the rest of these useless weakling gods combined, and we'll get back to Ottomans later. They go in through a side entrance because the Queen has ordered that no one will come into contact with Keltham whose soul is not sold already, or who isn't a priest of Asmodeus. There's a dazzling hallway and then a room that is, well, exquisitely designed to some unapologetically evil aesthetics. It has thick red velvet curtains around an enormous iron bed which has actual chains and shackles built into the headboard, and a thick red carpet, and an enormous fireplace against one wall. Next to the fireplace is a rack of fire-stoking equipment, which a person who knows a lot about fire-stoking, which Keltham hopefully does not, might identify as not even all that useful for that. There's a cozy reading nook with an armchair and a tall bookshelves full of leather-bound books, and a little kneeling pillow next to the armchair. There's an Asmodean shrine with incense and a stone ritual seat that you obviously let blood into. There are beautiful tapestries on the walls, depicting well-dressed people dancing. And there's a window opening on a courtyard full of blooming roses. Carissa's life is so interesting. Derogatory? What are the books? Oh, good. Looks like they're Taldane poetry and a 14-volume history of Absalom dated from before the Age of Lost Omens began. Keltham mostly notices the chains on the bed. They don't parse instantly, but he can deduce their use after a few moments. Keltham smiles slightly. I want to say somebody's overestimated our relationship progress, but on second thought, maybe not. I like the rest of the aesthetic. It's very close to a similar Daythalani aesthetic called Doompunk, which I do not totally fail to appreciate. You can press this bell for staff, says their escort, and departs. Doompunk, huh? I'm glad you like it. It parses as an evil aesthetic here. Interesting. In Dathalani terms, that's more associated with a self-aware supervillain with a sense of humor, one who laughs maniacally while executing their cunning plans, and also knows exactly how much of a cliché that is and does it anyways, because that's them living their best life. I don't think we'd say it's associated with evil supervillains rather than good supervillains, though. If anything, it leans slightly the opposite. Supervillain parses as a kind of thing that'd only be evil, a lich commanding enormous armies of the undead, or a wizard who has concocted a mad scheme to end life or something. Commanding armies of the undead is supervillainy. Absolutely. Extremely doom-punk, too. But I don't see why that would be good or evil in itself, aside from whatever you were trying to do with the undead armies. And a wizard with a mad scheme to end life is good, as I understand that, because they're not doing it to benefit themselves, they're doing it because they think life should be ended for its own welfare. Well, in Dathilani fiction, that's why they'd be doing it. If that happens in real life here, maybe it's very different. But then why would they? World-destroying supervillains in Dathilani fiction are by default, and absent deliberate subversion or aversion of the trope, negative utilitarians. Dathilani take for granted, in the background and without thinking much of it, that their literary characters make as much sense as everything else does on their planet. Fictional antagonists are being animated by Dathalani authors who will grant those simulated minds at least the mental skills taught to children. There just aren't many things you can intelligently want to accomplish by destroying reality except for preferring that stuff which exists not exist. In stories in Galerion, it'd mostly be for revenge because they feel the world wronged them. 
And the undead armies would be because the lich wants to be personally rich and powerful, so he wants to conquer countries to do it. It makes sense that since your society is so good, your supervillains would be too. I just don't see how being a supervillain asterisk is an alignment-correlated thing at all. It's an aesthetic, not a utility function. Specification of what goals people pursue. I wanted to be a supervillain when I grew up, and while this was not a realistic life goal, nobody would have listed that as a reason why I was any more evil than anyone else. The guy heading up our moon colony is a supervillain. His bedroom probably looks basically like this one, but with a real sleeping surface, and minus the chains. Asterisk. The compound word supervillain began as a fictional trope in Dathilan, but the corresponding real-life aesthetic and gender trope and famous person behavior pattern later took over as the primary meaning of supervillain in baseline, and the compound no longer means quite what its conjuncts say. This baseline term is now translating oddly to Taldane's cognate for their real-world version of the old Dathilani fictional trope, based on a similar compound, which in Taldane has preserved its original meaning. In civilization, supervillain hasn't primarily referred to anything fictional since long before Keltham was born, and he's not particularly thinking about the underlying baseline components, supervillain, nor even that this well-worn, formerly compound but now specialized term has components, let alone the etymology of the word. So, most powerful people are evil. In Golarion. I think pretty much all of them who aren't part of some specific good religious order. I imagine that's very different in Dathilan but wanting power, except I want to study so much magic that lots of people come to my wizard tower to buy magic from me is... You're almost definitely, if you actually pull it off, going to have assassinated some people, ordered some children drowned so they won't be competition for your throne. Those are examples from a Taldane history she read this morning. And I guess you could do that while still intending good, but the sorting doesn't just pay attention to your self-serving narrative. And if you're killing lots of people to amass power, it's almost definitely going to call you evil. And you cannot become powerful without killing lots of people. Because if you try Zon Kuthon sends military squads after you, and you won't survive unless you kill them first, I'm not having an easy time figuring out what killing people has to do with getting power. In my visualization, it mostly gets you dead people, which, at least where I come from, you can't take a bunch of corpses to the neighborhood bartering fair and say, would somebody like to trade me a lot of power for this bunch of corpses? Well, what you do is you kill the people who were in charge of a place, and then you kill anyone who says you're not in charge now. And that's how becoming in charge of places works. Pretty much. Assuming this works at all, why isn't the whole world ruled by the one most powerful person who can kill anybody else? who then declares that nobody else is allowed to kill anybody so that their world will operate in a quiet and orderly fashion and not go through a lot of annoying, unprofitable chaos. Because it's not actually all that much more fun to rule the entire world than to rule a country the size of Cheliax, and because there are a bunch of gods trying to counterbalance each other's power, and because there are random Ninth Circle wizards who can't be bothered to straighten out everywhere, but who make it very clear that if you harass the peasants right on their doorstep, then they'll dismantle you for parts. And because lots of parts of the world are too distant and rural and low population and speak languages, no one else speaks and it's not clear. 
it's worth ruling them, and because empires don't generally grow past the distance limit of a teleport, if it costs several, it's incredibly costly to bring enough force over to keep your distant provinces in line. I am willing to believe you about all of that, but as a Dathilani, I am used to knowing why equilibria balance where they do, and I am very far from understanding that here. I get the basic point that, if 0.1% of a country's population is 90% of its military power, they can form an internal coalition and not let anybody else vote, assuming the populace hasn't otherwise been trained in the decision theory of coordinating their refusal of an unfair bargain. I could not then predict that this coalition adopts rules that look like, if you kill the person at the top of us, you now own our city. Why don't the 0.1% of the people with 90% of the military power form their own government of revocable delegations among themselves? If one person at the top has 51% of the military power, it should work away, which is them running everything. If hash 1 and hash 2 can gang up to beat hash 0 but get beaten in turn by hash 3, hash 4, and hash 5, it would work a different way. I need to play through some mini-game for how this works with, like, six people before I try to visualize how it works for a planet. What is the simplest case, with the smallest number of people, all of whom are on the game board, not just in the background somewhere, where you'd kill somebody and get power? Sure. Imagine a small village on a river somewhere, far north with poor farmland, maybe claimed by a distant king, but he neither collects taxes nor enforces law, so he doesn't feature in this story. In practice, the village is led by a priest of, I don't know, Phrasma, who is the only person in the village with magic. When villagers accuse each other of crimes, he hears them out and fines or punishes the one at fault. He collects a tax from them for the church of 10% of their fields. Then someone's wayward son who went off to be an adventurer comes back, third circle, capable of impressive things, rich with goods from out of town, and he is welcomed back by his family until he drunkenly hits someone else in a quarrel over a girl and kills them because he's an adventurer now and hits harder. And this is brought up before the old priest, and the priest says the adventurer must pay a fine and serve the family of the man he killed at harvest and planting time for ten years, in the place of the laborer he took from them, and the adventurer spits in his face and then kills him too, and then says, Hey, from now on, I'm the one who will hear out accusations of crime in this village. Leaving aside the decorative horror and focusing on the underlying game theory, so... Even assuming the villagers have no way of killing the adventurer, even by cooperatively sacrificing themselves, there's a saying in Doth Ilan, anyone can kill anyone, but they probably shouldn't. And maybe that's just not true here. In which case, fine. And even assuming they don't all go, fuck this guy's unfair division of gains from trade, let's head to the afterlife and leave him with an empty village. Then, if nothing exists in the world outside this village, if there are no hidden players not on the game board, then it would seem to be in this person's best interests not to let anyone else kill anybody and run the whole village for his own profit, until somebody else comes along who's stronger and kills him, which is the case I described before. I agree that, assuming the villagers let the adventurer get away with that and don't just leave for the afterlife, if one is a fourth-circle cleric, one could perhaps come in and kill the adventurer and get a little sad bit of power. It doesn't seem like something that scales. 
The reason it works is that it's isomorphic to a two-player game, where one player has all power and the other player has none, but goes along with an unfair division of gains instead of leaving for the afterlife. Your confusion is why the adventurer doesn't ban killing in the village. He probably does. He doesn't run the whole village for his own profit, but mostly because that would be more likely to make people get fed up and leave. Having to deal with one asshole who also maintains order is one thing, but if he's also raising taxes a lot and picking fights and taking wives, then at some point people leave. So he is limited in how much he fucks with them. I don't think... I think the villagers could kill him by cooperatively sacrificing themselves. But why would they do that? Individually, it just results in them being dead. So I was going to say that maybe you didn't have enough law to solve that problem. But it sounds like you have an artificial substitute, which would be fine for something like this. Swear an oath that only binds you to action after you've heard every adult in the village swear the same oath. Publicly generate random numbers. Three people picked by the random numbers, or however many it takes, sacrifice themselves to kill the adventurer. Put up a sign outside your village saying this is how your village does stuff. The adventurer reads the sign and goes somewhere else, so the people never even have to sacrifice themselves. Other people hear about what a great adventurer-free village that was and say, hey, why don't we put up a sign like that too? So, in Cheliacs, where children grow up understanding that they are lawful, and that means something, maybe you could make something like that work. But in most places, people won't actually go to their deaths because they swore. They would. Not all of them, not enough of them that that works, I don't think. And more people would just decline to swear to it in the first place because it's not that bad having an adventurer be in charge of your village. And some people would read the sign and take it as a challenge, and it's weird, so people wouldn't do it. I was going to say something about it sounds like you might have a problem that gods and ideal agents don't have, which is a key fact that I needed to hear in order to understand what is going on. But I am suddenly arrested by the possibly even more important notion of, it's weird, so people wouldn't do it which sounds like it would stabilize literally any possible behavior. Because if everyone does that, then any other behavior is weird. I mean, yes. But, but most weird things that someone smarter than you came up with and that you don't fully understand aren't in your interests. So not doing weird things is better than doing weird things if you're not very smart. I may possibly need to think about that for a bit. You do that. I'm going to figure out whether they gave us a key to the chains or whether they're supposed to be magically operated. They have a big iron key. Very fancy. Wizards into bondage usually use unseen servants, which can only apply 20 pounds of force but are enough for if you're not expecting serious physical opposition. 20 pounds feels like a lot, shaped right. So, their world has people who are more smart or less smart, just like his world. Lots of smarter people, however, are out to exploit less smarted people using adversarially selected arguments. So the less smarted people have to freeze in place and only believe what they were told by their parents, Keltham guesses, because even if somebody wandering into the village looks as dumb as you, they could be a smart person faking that. Nobody has any law-inspired concept of validity, or which arguments are admissible or inadmissible, or how to go about constructing a narrower class of arguments that could still contain important stuff while being harder for smarter adversaries to exploit. 
Their books are endless strings of non-sequiturs and impossible leaps and emotion invocations. And when your contest of ideas is on that level, there is nothing you can do to stop a clever adversary from doing a search that good hearts through any flaws or loopholes in the resistance of a dumber argument, considerer. Or maybe Dath Ilan would also be like this, law or no law, if not for the keepers, and the fact that the keepers are, so far as Keltham knows, good. Just given what's publicly known about talk control, most Dath Ilani can little more resist a high-ranked keeper going all out on exploiting their own flaws than a villager of this world could resist the arguments of a wizard if the villager was foolish enough to hear out a stranger. But what, what is he supposed to do about that? if that's the case. Even if he can mass-manufacture intelligence headbands, they won't change the relative intelligence. Well, no, because currently the smartest people get intelligence headbands, and the less smart people don't, so at the very minimum fixing that would have to shift the equilibrium relative to what it is now. Thanks for my evening update on how awful Galarian is, Keltham says out loud, and not without a certain irony. More of an update than the Kutites were? The Kuthites are a problem, and if they've penetrated your security, they're much more of a problem. But they are a relatively shallow and understandable problem compared to average intelligence people not being able to trust that all the arguments they hear aren't out to get them. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know how you solve that without the resources of the church. You do have the resources of the church, though, and with that it's solvable, though slowly— you open schools, and you feed the kids at school, and so parents send the kids to school, even if they worry it'll teach things they can't trust, and then other people notice things that can't be faked, like that the kids are more prosperous, and over generations, people come around. Or I could figure out how to mine spell silver in the sort of volume that civilization gets when civilization wants lots of a rare metal, and make intelligence headbands for wizards, who would then craft more headbands, and give all of the villagers intelligence headbands, and do it, not over generations. There's a place in life for doing things the slow way with diligent hard work. And that place is when there is in fact no shortcut whatsoever for doing things a faster way. Yes. All right. Certainly the give-them-all-intelligence-headbands plan is better, though I'll note that the fanciest, most expensive headband will enhance a slightly duller-than-average peasant up to 14, which is still, you know, not smart enough. Cheliax puts you on projects that require the ability to make decisions independently. It's a start on half of a solution. Minus two and Dathilan isn't too dumb to learn the sort of law you've been learning in my lessons. You just learn it a couple of years later. It would be the most important thing that had ever happened. We'll see what problems remain after that. I want some. If you invent a way to mine arbitrary spell silver. How much do you want? He said, bearing in mind that he didn't have any grasp of units and would need those translated into least expensive headband and unskilled labor year units. More than I know what to do with. More than I could use even if I spent every waking moment on fancy, complicated, enchanted projects. That would be twenty or so least expensive headbands a day, and there is no sense giving you a value in unskilled labor years, because I do not expect to get this wish of mine if spell silver mining continues to cost unskilled labor years. But the current state is that a headband is fifty-five unskilled labor years. So, assuming unskilled laborers work four hours per day averaged over rest days, wait. Keltham suspects he may have made an important unit conversion error, 
throwing off several other calculations. And the number of unskilled labor hours in one unskilled labor year? 4,500-ish, I suppose? Blink, blink. That's around 13 hours a day, including rest days if those even exist, unless your year doesn't have 365.2422 days per year. We have 360, exactly. There are two festivals. What that makes no sense at all. In Dath Ilan, the time between spring equinox of one year and the spring equinox of the next year is 365.2422 days. The amount of time it takes Dath Ilan to complete exactly one orbit around the sun is 365.2596 days, and I have absolutely no idea how having two festivals could interact with either of those quantities. The number of days it takes for the sun to complete its orbit is 360 rather than 365, and as an answer to your separate question about rest days, there are two of them. Welp, I'm going to chalk up those insane work hours and lack of rest as hopefully a problem merely of quantitative productivity rather than a horrifying Galarian structural equilibrium that will persist even in the presence of infinite machinery, and then I'm going to only think about it insofar as that serves the purpose of doing something about it. Sound like a plan. Sounds great. I wanted to daydream about mountains of spell silver here, not be sad about global problems. Among the many ways of viewing your global problems is that they are caused by some missing mountains of spell silver, and if we're going to go looking for those anyways, we might as well keep one mountain for ourselves. That's what being evil is all about. You're going to say things like that to me and then have some kind of societal norm of not having sex on days when bad things happened? Can I at least kiss you? This is the most bizarrely fascinating bedroom talk that Abigail has ever spied upon in possibly her entire life, and she genuinely does not see how Sevar is going to pull this off. If Sevar manages to tempt and corrupt Keltham from this starting point, she will get her county. You might have to explain first how kissing works. The word sounds like the lip-touching thing, and all I knew about that was to mirror what you did. Not that we couldn't just improvise, so long as it's the sort of thing that goes well when improvised. Abigail has things to do, and now she has to choose between doing those things and continuing to spy on this. Which is unfortunate. Having that never happen to her is something she should have thought to write into her compact with Asmodeus somehow. You haven't invented kissing. Well, I suppose, then, as Galarian's duly appointed representative to Keltham, it is my duty to try to explain it to you, though it's popular because it does in fact go well when improvised. See, you can do a little kiss like this, she repeats last night, which just says, I like you and I want you, or you can do a little more than that. And he's kissing back in a very uninspired way. Well, this was a good time for things to get boring, she supposes. It is, apparently, time to end her brief break and actually attend her war council. Gorthoklek is almost finished breaking down her door. Likewise, mortal but longer-lived things, a hair closer to ideal agency, though still far from it, now battle. Their objective, to bring enough pressure to bear on Zan Kuthan outside the vault, that he must choose between being inside that vault and significantly ceasing to be. Maybe not ceasing entirely, but becoming perhaps a fallen being, a mere demigod. He must choose between going into the vault and that. The assembled gods cannot reasonably endeavor to kill all of Zonkuthon if he chooses the latter path. 
Gods encrypt their energies, arrange their potentials in lattices and arrays to which only they have keys. Like a box full of bouncing classical gas atoms that can be made to all end up on the box's left side, in apparent defiance of thermodynamics and ready to yield up their heat as a pressure. If you know the secret for how those atoms were originally set in motion to be able to end up like that with the right tweak. Anybody who doesn't know the secret just sees a box full of a useless uniform gas. In likewise way, a being under such assault as Zon Kuthan may scatter little shards of himself here and there, too small and subtle for now to be noticed, but destined to collide and gather up at some future time, a time when his adversaries are paying less attention, no longer spending all their own power and watchfulness to launch a coordinated assault on him, blanketing Galarian and the other planes where he extends. Among the greatest of adventurers who yet do not quite understand, it is whispered that only by killing a great power within their own home plane is it possible to destroy that power permanently, and also that a power within its home plane is nearly invincible. These whispers are not quite accurate. The key concept, rather, and from mortals it is hidden, is that gods face a trade-off between weakness and vulnerability. They can gather themselves up and become stronger, but only at the risk of their own true destruction. Any problem which requires you to become unified and powerful and localized and therefore vulnerable to any still greater force is a challenge you should face on your own home ground if you possibly can. On the very rare occasions when powers are truly slain, therefore, they tend to fall within their home planes, after ascending to terrifying heights within it. The assembled gods, then, know that they can only force so much of Zon Kuthon into the vault prepared for him. As he could survive as a demigod outside it, he can also go mostly into the vault but leave a demigod's worth of himself outside. That demigod's worth of power will not be able to free Rovagug, though, and that is all the assembled gods are aiming for. Most of them, that is. Nethys sure will really be in trouble if anyone finds out he did this part. Nethys sees every part of Zonkuthon. Nethys knows where every part of Zonkuthon is trying to hide. Nethys provides those coordinates to someone else. That's the sort of divine backstab that, if found out, will get every large or obvious remaining piece of Nethys assaulted by more Galarian gods than are currently assaulting Zonkuthon. The only reason the gods are not currently that scared of Nethys is because it has not, up until now, seemed like Nethys is particularly likely to do that sort of thing to tattle on God's secrets to one another, to start wars between them, in which Nethys will pick sides and provide aid, weakening them until all the gods that Nethys doesn't like, or maybe all the other gods, period, have been killed. It would not be in Nethys's seeming interests to start down that path, because you can't conceal that sort of thing forever. But that logic is not unassailable, and other gods will be watching for early signs. Nethys is doing this part anyways. Snip, snip, snip. She's mostly appearing to fight Zon Kuthon along with the other gods, but it doesn't take much extra power to kill those little defenceless bits of Zon Kuthon if you know exactly where to look for them. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.